2: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Architectural styles have evolved significantly throughout history and around the world. But what goes unnoticed is how a small window of time dramatically changed how we practice and how its value is perceived today. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello. My name is Demetrius. Jason and Michelle are still out uh, for a couple more episodes as we wrap up this mini-series right in the middle of a three-part mini-series on the evolution of architecture. In this episode, we're going to discuss a little bit more about how architecture has evolved, uh, particularly in the area of practice and technology. So at this time, just a quick little warning, if you haven't heard episode one, uh, it's a good idea to go back and check that one out and just to get a little basis of where we're at, where we've come from, and, um, and then check back in with us here and we'll we'll get right back into it. So in place of Jason and Michelle I have two guests. So my first guest is the an architect and designer who's devoted to bring out the best in creative teams. He's a co-founder and partner at Laney L.A., an architecture firm focusing on serving home and business owners in L.A. He began his career with the renowned firm Marmol Radziner, working for clients as distinguished as Tom Ford. Graduating from the top of his class from the USC School of Architecture, he won 17 class commendations and received numerous recognitions, including the AIA Medal and the Studio Design Award. He's a multidisciplined designer whose work encompasses architecture, landscape architecture, interior design, graphic design, branding, and social leadership. He's active on social media, so you can reach out to him there at Laney LA Inc. that's L-A-N-E-Y L-A-I-N-C, and he's building a culture of a fast-paced, passionate team and sharing it with the rest of us please help me welcome Anthony Laney. Thanks for coming on, Anthony. And if there's anything outside of your uh, bio, tell us a little bit more about
1: you and the company. All right, cool, well, happy to be here. My name is Anthony Laney, I'm a a licensed architect. The name of our firm is Laney LA. We are a 12 person studio. We specialize in high-end custom homes. And we are working on expanding that to include commercial spaces, as well as landscape design and interior design. We've been officially a practice for the past five years. um, And I launched it with my wife, uh, Crystal Laney, and... um, yeah, we've just slowly grown the firm over time. It's been a really fun, wild ride. I am still learning so much about the profession, a ton about what it means to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I really do love it. And I'm learning more and more that this profession is a, is a wide and varied one. I'm sure we're going to get into that, but uh, that's a little bit about me. Great.
2: And our second guest is an industry-leading design and technology expert. He is a licensed architect and HMC architects Director of Digital Practice. With 25 years of architecture design and project experience, he leads HMC's vision, application, and integration of digital design technologies. For over a decade, he taught emerging digital technology courses in the architecture department at my alma mater, California State Polytechnic University Pomona, aka Cal Poly Pomona, and Mount San Antonio College. He is the author of ARE Hacks and also hosts a widely recognized architecture and design podcast called Archie Speak. Please help me welcome Evan Troxel. <laughs> Evan, thanks for coming on. And same, if you uh, if there's anything outside of your bio, definitely let us know a little bit more about you and HMC Archie Speak.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, and also very happy to be here, Demetrius. It's great to connect with you again and with Anthony. Um, I let's see, Evan Troxel's is my name, licensed architect also. And I've been working at HMC Architects for about 15 years total. I did have a break in in there somewhere for about nine years. And while I, I went and did a bunch of different stuff. And I think that's really kind of where I get my more diverse perspective on working in a larger firm and I am very entrepreneurial as well, like Anthony, and, and so because of that, it's kind of how I approach transforming a 79-year-old firm into the digital, um, I, you know, we're beyond the digital age, but let's, <laughs> let's first catch up, and then let's, let's lead at some point. Um, so HMC, we mostly do public work, and so we do huge projects, uh, mostly in California, but we're breaking out of that. Um, we have done some large work internationally as well uh, we did a huge hospital in china and uh and and so most of our stuff is education and healthcare and civic work um, i was a senior designer on many projects here at hmc and now i'm our, the director of our digital practice which is really about transforming the way we work and the tools that we use um, aside from that uh let's see i've got the arca speak podcast which you guys know about but your listeners may not um and i wrote a book about getting licensed about kind of strategies on how to get licensed when you're a busy person and uh how how you can hack your life to do that because we all know it's one of the the more difficult things to do for at least for for me it was and uh I don't know there's probably more but that that's enough for now i got four teenagers so you feel sorry for me
2: (laughs) i don't know how you do all of that it is insane um so a little at a time (laughs) want to kind of get your perspectives from the different styles of architecture firm uh anthony i've watched from afar um, and the, the progress of his firm growing and, and the way that he approaches um, promoting his business is a really fascinating, exciting way to, to market. Uh, Evan, who is actually a professor of mine uh, back when I went to Cal Poly Pomona, uh, still teaches. And I don't know how he manages all the stuff that he does um, working at HMC as well. Uh, and tackling kind of transforming the the technological side of that company. But before we continue the conversation, guys wanted to continue to give our listeners a background of where architecture has come from. And to do that, you got to go back in time. In the wake of the first industrial revolution, The 19th century signaled a transition to new manufacturing processes in Europe and the United States, having a major effect on architecture. Stylistically, it was greatly influenced by new technologies, building techniques, and construction materials. Early modernism, Bauhaus, and the international style were significant styles of the era, emphasizing clean lines and a deliberate absence of ornamentation. Revival architecture continued while others came and went. Art Nouveau, a decorative style of architecture characterized by flowing lines and abstract floral motifs. Expressionism, which emerged in Germany as a rebellion against the industrial style of modern architecture, preferred more articulated forms of curves, spirals, and non-symmetrical elements. Art Deco was influenced by a combination of sources, including the geometrics of cubism, the movement of futurism as well as various elements of art but unlike art nouveau it had no theoretical or political agenda deconstructivism was characterized by non-rectilinear shapes typically unpredictable and even shocking in appearance and blob architecture or blob yes blob <laughs> expressed more organic rounded bulging shapes However, the evolution of architectural practice and the evolution of the building industry is the silent star of the 19th and 20th century. Remember, in the late 16th century, a new theory of landholding emerged granting exclusive control of the land, allowing landowners to use and profit by as they saw fit. And that changed everything. In concert with the technological advancements of the second industrial revolution, the, we'll call it, competitive appetite of America was awakened, opening the door to building as an industry. Society had moved on from building for religious deities to a new god, money. Speculative construction began to arise as a viable business. This is a process where unused land or buildings are purchased and a project is undertaken with no formal commitment from any end users, i.e. building houses to sell, converting a building into apartments to sell, constructing retail space to ultimately lease or sell, constructing a business park or office space to sell or lease. Before the 1800s, any talented and skilled person could become an architect through reading, apprenticeship, self-study, and admiration of the current ruling class. But, as the building industry grew in the United States, a group of 13 prominent architects launched the American Institute of Architects, or AIA. Founded on February 23, 1857, the AIA aspired to promote the scientific and practical perfection of its members and to elevate the standing of the profession. The organization established standards of ethical conduct, standardized contracts, and policies for the training and credentialing of architects. While the AIA developed training and credentialing policies, it is the National Architectural Accrediting Board, or NAB, that standardized the education and training of US architects the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, or NCARB, that regulates the standards for licensing and each individual state adopts laws for architects and issues licenses for them. The first laws were actually adopted in Illinois in 1897. This regulation and standardization was important as construction materials had advanced to allow architects and engineers to literally reach new heights. The Chicago School of Architecture, not actually a school, but a group of designers that produced high-rise buildings using new foundation techniques, metal skeleton frames, and steel and iron, was founded by William LeBaron Jenny. And as the economy thrived, various industry titans wanted to display their success in the form of skyscrapers. And over a short 23-year period, the great skyscraper race changed the landscape of the United States. 1908, the Singer Building stood at 612 feet, the Metropolitan Life Building 700 feet in 1909, and the Woolworth Building rose to 792 feet in 1913. Then it got really interesting. Walter P. Chrysler, a man of modest means, began his career as a machinist and railroad mechanic he switched to the automotive industry where he worked as a production manager for Buick. After working his way up the ranks, through salary and stock options, he ended up leaving Buick as one of the richest men in America. He used that money to purchase Maxwell Motor Company and absorbed it into the newly established Chrysler Corporation. Chrysler quickly became one of the most successful car companies at the time, and soon after, a prime piece of real estate became available, and it was a great opportunity for branding. Chrysler told New York architect William Van Allen, I want you to build the tallest building in the world. I want it to be of the finest character and spend whatever it takes. News broke that the Bank of Manhattan Trust building was to begin construction nearby and estimate it to exceed Chrysler's building height. The race to the tallest building was now underway. Based on backchannel information and rumors, both building designs evolved to increase in height. Mid construction, Van Allen redesigned the dome of the Chrysler Building to have a tapered look with tiers of domes rising to a point. In addition, a 185 foot spire was secretly assembled in the elevator shaft of the Chrysler Building. Assuming they had won the race, the Bank of Manhattan Trust Building had opened at 927 feet in 1930. But not so fast. Just months later, the 27-ton spire of the Chrysler building was erected, bringing the total building height to 1,046 feet, winning the battle. However, it was short-lived as the Empire State Building opened the following year at 1,250 feet, stealing the title of the tallest structure in the world. The race probably would have continued, but the Great Depression brought it to a screeching halt. On the ground, architect Frank Lloyd Wright revolutionized spatial
3: concepts. Then came the countenance of that space, which was more or less what I termed streamlined. Then there was the open plan. Instead of a building being a series of boxes and closets, came more and more open, more and more uh, sense of space. The outside came in more and more, and the inside went out more. Then of course there were structural implications which we hinted at a little while, of a building that had tenuity and uh, instead of a building without any it could fall apart. These houses built upon this plan are good for 300 years I should say.
2: His work showed that European traditionalism and modernism was not the only answer to architectural issues in the United States.
3: And we try to put into that house a sense of unity of the altogether that makes it part of its site. If the thing is successful, the architect's effort, you can't imagine that house anywhere than right where it is. It's a part of its environment and it graces its environment rather than disgraces it. Simultaneously,
2: Many politicians were concerned that nearly 90% of the population rented and their dependency on landlords created obligation to support the landlords' political whims. After the Great Depression and World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt launched programs to increase America's housing stock as part of the nation's recovery plan and to accommodate the surge of soldiers returning from war. By this time, Wright began designing the Usonian homes, small single-story dwellings characterized by native materials and cantilever overhangs, clear story windows for natural lighting, indirect lighting, radiant floor heating, and minimal front exposure with the rear and private sides open to the exterior. It was considered among the aesthetic origins of the ranch-style home that would soon populate suburban developments. The Federal Housing Association subsidized builders to mass produce homes and lessons from the growing automotive industry began to influence the building industry.
5: Part of the lure of the suburb is in the greater elbow room it offers. Part of it is due to that relative newcomer to our economy, the budget-priced home. This symbol of modern American living has brought with it more than a changing landscape, it has changed a great industry. Keen competition in the booming home construction industry has forced reexamination of almost every time-honored method with a view to improving quality and at the same time reducing costs. Consider Levittown, Delaware Valley, USA, one of the world's largest single-unit housing developments located in the fast-growing industrial area between Philadelphia and New York City. Here, 16,000 low-cost homes are being constructed on spacious landscape lots, bordering gently sloped, winding streets.
2: Construction now had a new benchmark for speed, efficiency, and cost-effective construction, building at a rate of 30 houses a day. Society largely embodied this new culture of faster and cheaper. However, this is counterintuitive to the process of architecture. Architecture is a laborious process that ranges from big picture planning and design to intricate details down to a quarter of an inch increments. It receives various inputs of occupant and site concerns and restrictions to analyze and generate an effective design solution that addresses the various considerations. The cultural shift evolved architectural practice in two distinct ways. Technology rapidly advanced to help speed up the drawing process bringing computer-aided design programs to market in the 1970s and 80s. However, the funny thing about technology is its mere existence to solve a problem immediately raises expectations. As drawing production caught up with the requisite efficiency and speed, more information, shorter schedules, and counteractively, a reduction in fees are expected. Secondly, the very structure of practice changed, unfortunately bringing value into question. The notoriety of speculative development rose, particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, when the deregulation of the financial sector and a growth in international financing led to a property boom. Inevitably, when there is speculation, especially at a rapid pace, there is significant risk to follow. In the book The Business of Design by Keith Granite, when asked, Have you seen the face of architecture change over the years? John Merrill of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill replied, "'There has been a significant change "'in terms of client relationships.'" He continued, quote, "'I recall in the 50s and 60s "'that the relationship between client and architect "'was very close. "'You were friends. "'Contracts were three pages long. "'If there was a problem, "'things would be settled by sitting down with the client "'and working it out. "'There is not the litigious atmosphere that exists now.'" End quote. Like a game of hot potato, When playing a risky game, someone usually loses in the end. The amount of risk involved in developing a building or community is financially enormous and can arise in a variety of ways. Poor market, poor construction, scope creep, inconsistent cash flow, contractor liability, drawing error, or miscommunication. Architectural contracts inevitably intensified. The mounting risk led some architects to reduce services and or shift responsibilities to decrease liability in what could be a business ending lawsuit, and relationships between industry professionals and clients drastically changed, sometimes becoming more contentious. Subsequently, the value of architecture in the building industry was questioned. In addition, in organizing the profession, Obtaining and maintaining licenses became a long, extensive, and costly endeavor, and like anything else that is structured, an unchecked, cheaper alternative always arises. The activity of unlicensed and untrained individuals providing architectural services exacerbated the credibility and importance of architecture, suppressing the market by undercutting licensed architects' fees who must account for costs of training, licenses, insurances, etc. All of this added to confusion, making it unclear, what does an architect actually do? Tune into part three of this series to hear more on the evolution of architecture. Let's start with what, in your opinion, does an architect actually do? Uh,
1: Anthony, you want to start? Got it. Okay, awesome. Love it. Um, <laughs> if I had to answer that, answer that in a general question, I would say that architects... Um, They help identify problems, visualize solutions to those problems, and then help coordinate and execute the implementation of those solutions. Uh, I can speak a lot more specifically as to what I do, um, which is a very small sector within that. Yeah, go for it. Um, Yeah, so um, I help lead a team that brings my clients' residential dreams to life. And so that means that I am around design and around architecture all the time. But my main function, if you were to audit my day or shadow me throughout the day, it's really about enabling others, unblocking others, clarifying for others um, how they are on mission and on task uh, to design solutions often small solutions that are part of a much bigger puzzle on their project. So for me, I love the task switching that's involved. And I love the um, kind of the interaction with all sorts of consultants and collaborators and employees and clients. Uh, that's what my day really does look like. Great.
2: Evan, how would you kind of approach that answer of what does an architect
0: do? Yeah, so it's it's huge. And I think I think not only does the the general public maybe not understand it, but man, I don't think that we understand it. (laughs) Uh, I know that students coming out of school don't understand it. And and I think that's because it's it's really difficult picture to paint for people because it is so, so varied, Uh, because like like Anthony, I think a lot of my day to day is leadership. And, and I think Anthony said it really well which is removing roadblocks enabling others to to do their best work uh, and and it's funny because like that's not the job description of of any architecture job that you're going to go look for right and it, it just becomes kind of a role in, in how we operate and so you know like Demetrius you went to Cal Poly and you know everybody in that school is being trained to be a designer and I can tell you at, at HMC there's less than 10 percent of the population here is design is probably less than five percent in a firm our size and as as far as like proper titled um, designer i i think design is not necessarily a a department and i don't think design is a phase either on a project but um, if you were to try to put a name to what somebody does like when you when you graduate from school and you go work for a firm you might be drawing details, you might be managing a project, you might be um, you know, a technical leader on a project, and those are all different roles within architecture, but none of those are, are actually quote unquote designers, even though I totally believe that it is design all the way through the, through the process. So it, it, you know, it's a hard question to answer. I believe the things that Anthony said are true, and I would just say that it, it's kind of a role. Architecture is a, An architect is a facilitator, and somebody who synthesizes ideas from tons of inputs, right? We've got environmental inputs, we've got contextual inputs, we've got uh, people, different users and stakeholders in projects, and the projects that we work with. You know, it, it's not uncommon to have thirty or fifty people in a room telling you the list of things that their spaces must have.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: um, which is different than the scope of of Anthony's stuff, right? When you're working with a family, so. Um, you have to synthesize all that information and you have to come up with concepts that would work and then decide on a direction. And then you have to synthesize that into reality and make it a thing. And um, I I believe that if it doesn't get built, it doesn't count. So, um, you know, paper architecture, conceptual architecture is just that, you know, you don't have a site per se. You don't have a, a client per se, but I think those realities Are what really um, show people the value of what an architect can do. And it's through the synthesis of all that input coming up with something that actually gets built by people with their hands. I mean, we can't forget, like, we still are in the age of these things get built by hand. (laughs) Yeah. um, That's what, that's where, that's the intersection of what an architect is.
2: And I want to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned, uh, Evan. On the leadership side, I don't think people understand that the architect kind of should be the the project leader and you should start with the uh, architect if you're considering doing a project. I can't even, I don't even know how many times, um, because I don't think you guys know, uh, I I recently started my own practice along with this podcast, uh, so I'm doing some projects, smaller projects uh, myself. And a lot of projects have started with someone else, whether it's a, a landscape architect or um, structural engineer or contractor, and the architect is coming in later on, missing out on some of those early conversations and help sort of uh, synthesize all of those different inputs that you were mentioning. Um, so I think people miss the the idea that the architect who when you go through school, you get this broad kind of general uh, education about a lot of different things. So it's a good person to start with because they know which questions to ask um, and, and how to kind of talk to the, the um, governing agency to figure out what restrictions there are and what's possible or not. Um, so I think that's one thing to drive home for people that are not, uh, in the industry is that the architect is usually a great person to start with because they know which questions to ask both the client and uh, going to the agencies to find out what the restrictions are. And uh, Yeah,
0: I, I agree. I, I think that uh, a really great architect is somebody who is a, is a student of living and a student of, of how we use space Um, but they stay at a level to which they don't get embedded in, uh, you know, the dogma of certain typologies, right? Like the, the people go house shopping for the most part, right? Which Mm -hmm. is like car shopping and which is like iPhone shopping, right? Like I want to buy the thing and, and like the Apple's famous for saying, it just works, right? (laughs) And that's what people want for the most part. And, and process is kind of a you're never exposed to the process of what it takes to design a car or design an iPhone, right? Like that, all that, that whole process is, is concealed from the user. Um, and architecture is not that like real architecture is going through that process. It's really scary for a lot of people. And so when I say you need to be a student of living and not be encapsulated in the dogma of like the really large, like what most people think living is
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and be able to like sail above that and look at different, like i think anthony could probably speak better better to this than i can especially when it comes to residential but it's like well have you thought about it this way <laughs> so architects are good at asking those kinds of questions to get people to really question why they think the way that they think when it comes to how they live or occupy a space
2: yeah anthony have you have you had uh, kind of an experience uh, i know i've had several of these where uh, a client comes to you and says, oh, the plan should be, I'm thinking of the plan being this way. And then you just kind of throw your your sketch paper over and, and come up with something completely different that they're like, oh, I didn't even think of that. That's a great solution.
1: Yeah, that happens all the time. And I certainly recognize that um, it's a major compliment when the client goes to the architect as their first and most trusted Agent, Um, but I also have learned not to hold my breath for what I would call ideal circumstances. I just don't know if that exists. Like, client uh, projects evolve and begin and come to life in so many ways. Often it starts with a lending agent or realtor. Sometimes uh, a soils report. Other times just bank funding. So, however it gets to me, whether it's a small team or a big team, I can certainly relate to what Evan mentioned. Where you're in a room. And you understand that there are just so many variables, parameters, stakeholders that need to be synthesized. And so, yeah, I think the architect is a great person to start with. I, I, I love, just my personality, I love being the generalist and being kind of allowed to be curious about so many things and to rely upon experts to take me deeper than I can go on my own. Back to your question, have clients come to me with a certain idea and has it changed over time? Almost always. Yeah. I, I actually love it when the client brings a strong opinion. I feel like that personality is something that our studio pairs well with when they have strong and deep um, kind of opinions about how their life should be, what their habits are, what their convictions are. Uh, we are not at all intimidated by that because we've learned to educate them in the process. And very rarely do we find clients come to us. Uh, and find that they're opposed to experiencing new ideas. I find that when we give an idea that's both surprising and inevitable, most of the time our clients, whether they agree with it or not, they certainly appreciate uh, the newness of that thought.
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing how I'm always surprised at how much better projects can come out based on all of those different inputs and restrictions and desires Uh, no matter if it's a structural requirement or a city requirement, uh, client input sometimes it all adds together to a, an amazing project that even is even better than what you originally thought that you were going to come up with.
0: I think yeah, constraints can give you a lot of clarity in that process.
2: Yeah, definitely. So. Um, you guys mentioned a couple things that lead me to my next question, uh, Anthony. You, you used a great word that I've kind of latched onto lately: is a, a generalist and kind of thinking in the the format of a. You have your um, primary doctor <laughs> as a comparison to the architect, and uh, then you have your specialists of structural, mechanical, and such and such, um, and then Evan, you mentioned something about uh, being a, a constant student. And when we talk about students and, and going through the process of learning uh, all the general parts of the building industry, uh, and then layer that on top of this heavy, heavy design um, sort of driver for, for our educational system, do you guys, how do you, how do you feel about our education system for architects? The, I'll start with you, Evan. Evan. Since, you, since you're the professor. Oh, it's, that's a,
0: there, there's a fire in that question somewhere. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I loved my educational experience that I had. Uh, and I don't know that I'm really one to judge because they're, they are varied. Um, if, I, if I was to, if you were to try to lock me down on an opinion about it, um, I do believe that they, for the most part, they're doing the best that they can to cram as much into you or even get you to unlearn some things that you learned before you went to school to, um, so that you can approach problem solving in the most effective way. And, and I appreciate that about students coming out of school uh, as far as their ability to approach the way that we approach problems. Uh, and that is what I think adds to the value of, of being an architect uh, at the same time, like there's, there's tons of holes in it. Right. I think that, uh, you know, I used to teach technology stuff at, at school, Demetrius. Right. And yeah. you know that, and, and I don't know if you know this now, but they don't do that anymore. Really? Uh, there's no time for that. So everybody's got a lynda.com account. Um, and, you know, YouTube is my favorite productivity tool <laughs> because there's so much crazy amount of information out there. Um, I mean, good and bad. Right. But, but it, you search for the good and and it's there. Um, so yeah, I mean, they don't even, they don't teach you how to use the tools anymore. Wow. And so they're kind of pushing that off to the, the firms or, or your own intrinsic motivation to, to learn that stuff on your own so that you can provide the, the deliverable when it's time for the critique, right? When it's time for the final presentation. Um, so it's, it's on the student now. Um, and so like, do I really think that's a good idea? I mean, yeah, yes and no. Right. Because like, who who are they to tell me which software to learn how to use? Uh, how do they know whether it's going to be valuable or not? Like I could go work at Anthony's firm and I'd have to use ArchiCAD and I can you can come work here and you'd have to use Revit. So which is the right one to teach in school? True. I mean, it's more about concepts and you know, like, they, those obviously translate. Um, so. So do I think that the current. I just think that they're doing the best they can. I would, I would totally advocate for like middle schools between high school and college for architecture and between college and the real world. So you kind of need something to get high school and community college students ready for the demands of what architecture school does. I think you could prepare those students for a much more successful journey than they get when they just show up on day one, a boot camp, if you will um and then i think the same thing goes for getting out into the profession because uh, most likely you're not going to do the thing that you were trained to do which is most likely design i can't speak for all schools of course Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um and so yeah you could get ready for project management and billing and you know present presenting in front of 50 people to design a new high school or whatever it's going to be i think there's another opportunity for a boot camp there but i think what what puts all of this together and puts it all on the same field and what I want to see. And, and, Anthony mentioned it, it's curiosity. Like it's, it's that intense curiosity. And I know I can train somebody to use whatever software that we need them to know how to use. Uh, it's not to my advantage to bring in their bad habits that la- that they maybe learned in college and apply those to my project. Right? So uh, if I can teach them, That's awesome because I know they're a sponge because I know they're intensely curious and that they are they they want to learn. Right. And I think to me, that's the most important um, thing that I would want in a in an employee or in a person who's coming into this field is that intense curiosity. And to me, that's really what separates kind of Uh, maybe even a power user from a super user. Mm -hmm. Um, A super user is really somebody with an intense curiosity. And they're like, they're a superstar because they're, they can learn anything and do anything and they're adaptable and nimble and flexible, you know, all the synonyms Mm -hmm. there. But uh, to me, that that's kind of what, what I'm looking for when I'm looking for somebody coming out of school.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. You talked me down on some of my opinions, but I'll jump into that in a second. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, how, how was your, uh, school experience and, and perspective of uh, what you know of ed- education level and, and kids that are coming to your firm
1: mm-hmm. my education so I was I was homeschooled and so I I love alternative approaches to education I went to USC to get my undergraduate degree had a very wonderful experience there I think that students I, I'm open to the fact that it's a broad profession and so is the architectural education there is room for folks who think that architecture undergraduate and graduate school is time for you to do fantastical theoretical conceptual architecture because that's not what you're doing in the real world and i'm also open to the idea that uh, college, if it's going to get a return on investment, needs to give the skill sets to uh, be a contributing member to a career, to a profession. Like uh, People can exist anywhere between those two poles. I'm deeply involved and in Teach at USC. I'm deeply involved in a, a local community college here. They have very different opinions about the profession. I think that that's okay. Um, I can cut through all that and say for my firm, I just need to find people that I want. Right. And that's going to be the rare individual because everyone else is for anyone else. Um, I love what Evan said about curiosity. One of our core values is what we call the detective's curiosity. Um, it is very rare that I mean, the half life of information is so brief that anything you learn in school, I I just have no hope that you're actually going to use that in my, in my firm. I I do not, I am, I am actively recruiting for three very important roles, entry-level role, mid-level role, and a very senior role. And even though we use ARCHICAD all day long every day, that, I don't even know if that shows up on our job description. Like, I just know I need to teach you from scratch because we're very good at I mean, we just, just like anything, you you learn your process. You learn how to train people on it. You have scorecards to keep people accountable, so that rock stars know that they're rock stars. What is my opinion of the profession? I think that um, I want people to come out of school being super hungry to learn more. I want them to be humble, knowing that it is a big profession and that they are at the bottom, not the top. And I want them to learn how to interact with teams, we call it like the EQ smart, like emotional intelligence, knowing how to speak design, not in a way that's at all demeaning or like kind of self-referential, but is really others focused. If someone comes with those core values and they've survived like a good architecture school, I know that they have the mental capacity to learn any software they throw at them, right? It's not rocket science at that point. But if they come thinking that they're rhino experts and they're going to suddenly like Fix my firm and take it to the next level. Uh, they're not going to get past very many interviews because that's not the quality that I need to make excellent architecture. Like that, that's a good. I would say we, we even use the word software agnostic, even though we're so into ArchiCAD, we use a ton of other platforms to kind of augment that. And so I just need someone who is passionate about learning fast, right? Who knows how to hit a roadblock and overcome that roadblock so that their team member can go farther. Like. Um, And I think architect, there's many ways to teach people how to do that. Um, The more uh, you use the word bridge. No, Evan, use the word middle school. I I think of it as kind of a bridge. Like the more I see the academic environment and the professional environment, like kind of overlapping. I just like that the same with theoretical and technical. I just think the more kind of hybrid approach you have, the more people can connect dots that that are actually connected. They're not, they don't need to be as far away from each other as they might currently be. Uh, so yeah, I like being connected to academics cause it connects me to all that's happening. And I hope that the people who join my firm join it because they can still have a rich design experience, but it is boots on the ground, like people building <laughs> everyday real architecture. That's, that's what gets me out of bed every day. Yeah. So I was, uh, I had this perception,
2: don't get me wrong, Evan, I love school, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> uh, loved your class. Um, I feel that that school has been too design heavy uh, in a theoretical sense. As far as really, in my perception, trying to create the next star architect, uh, really pushing this this high kind of crazy design and not so much on reality. So I think a lot of kids come out of school with this concept that they're going to be doing this these crazy projects. And in reality, there's very few of those, but at the same time that I said, as you talked me down a little bit <laughs> is I think there is some, there's definitely a lot of value in that and pushing those, those limits to, to learn how to really come up with these creative solutions. Uh, so I'm torn between those two worlds of, you kind of mentioned these worlds coming together of uh, being able to understand high quality, kind of out of the box design, um, but reality as well. So that's that's kind of where where I fall. But uh, going to that topic of the, the programs, in, in your two opinions, do you guys think that a student should basically kind of get just basic understanding of multiple programs just enough to have a, a kind of a foundation? as opposed to trying to put all your chips into one program and guess on which one's going
0: to be the future of the industry. I don't think that it really matters what your favorite app is or what you know the most. I think what really matters is the concepts. I think the concepts do translate from program to program. And like we just talked about, anybody can learn any tool. Like they all have the same menu bar at the top. I mean, there's some that are more robust than others. I think what you really want to look at is, is where is the, when we're talking about software where is this profession headed and how can i leverage that now uh, and and i think the writing is on the wall the the future is in data when it comes to this stuff and that's the reason why we use revit and archicad is because these things are smarter than the sum of their parts right so when when you're if you're just modeling something in let's just say sketchup right that you don't you don't have the into like the smarts built into the objects but you do in a BIM environment. So can you, can you kind of break down what you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. So, so when you're, okay. So I come from the design side and I understand the value of a program that is fast and easy to use to conceptualize space in architecture. And so let's throw SketchUp into that bucket. Okay. Uh, SketchUp is a, is a program that little, kids can use and I'm like really <laughs> little kids right uh, all the way up to professionals uh, so it's got it's got like the user base like it's it's easy to use everybody can use it anybody can use it the cool thing is you already know how to use it and you probably never even open the program <laughs> right so there's that but then there's the more specialized stuff which is BIM and the reason we we use BIM which is building information modeling and the key letter in that acronym is the I it's the information. Because BIM is more than three-dimensional drafting. It is, you, you're embedding information into every single element. And so there's lots of room for error there, right? You could just treat it like 3D drafting. You can treat them like dumb objects. But if you don't, if you really go deep into why you would want to utilize BIM to the maximum level that you can, it's because those models have the potential to do so much more for you. And when you're in a high stakes environment, um, when your latest project is $100 million plus, and they need to do construction phasing, analytics, and they need to do takeoffs on materials, and they need to do anything that you could think of that might um, save some money down the road. And then even after the project is delivered, they can use that model to organize and maintain their building. I mean, those are the kinds of things where I don't think the software that you choose now matters because I don't think that software is going to exist. And but the software that we're using right now is really going to even exist in 15 years. Like there's going to be something else. There's always going to be something else. So it really is about the concepts and understanding why you would want to use a tool for a certain job and just being able to speak to that. And so having like at least a baseline Understanding and maybe use of those tools, I think, is is important for people, and and not so much the name of the tool and the specific tool.
2: Anthony, are have your clients um, utilized that level of information
1: in in the models that you guys generate? I, I mean, we we really do leverage BIM. I think uh, very very effectively throughout the whole life cycle of the project, from early concepts and design all the way through uh, the details of of a fully staffed construction administration phase. Um, I have. I'm. I'm not in a, a an architectural typology where facility management is a thing for us. Yeah. Um. But we do a lot of laser scanning, and our clients can access the 3D model on their iOS devices, and so those are tools that they can continue to use. Um. But it's not. Again, I my projects don't have the kind of the scale where there's like a facilities manager yeah. uh, reprogramming spaces.
2: Yeah, no, I just wanted to kind of get the different extremes of, of our profession where right. in some cases you don't need it to that level of all the information uh, that, that a BIM model would necessarily provide, but on a large scale project like a hospital or wherever mm-hmm. facilities is engaged, that's, that's definitely gonna be the future of the industry where people wanna know um all those different details and you know if their energy is running high they can start to look in certain areas with the model and figure out you know what's going on and how to resolve it um with the existing system
4: yeah
0: yeah i mean they're they're pushing it now to to a a thing called digital twins where it it's a digital representation an exact copy in digital space of what's happening in the physical world with a built building and they're able to run simulations and they, they run different scenarios to raise their existing building to a higher level of efficiency. Um, it, it's a really interesting stuff that's going on with, with this. And you can only do that when you can leverage the data in that way. But I will also say you can run a practice on any piece of software you want. It yeah. doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, who cares? I, the, you know, my wife could run her practice on, our, on AutoCAD and, somebody else could run theirs on SketchUp and someone else could be running theirs in Rhino. And then, and then you start getting into BIM. So it, <laughs> honestly, like there's no, there's no golden answer here. It, it's more like, where do you find the value in your, in the platform that you've chosen and where is it headed and what's next?
2: Yeah. Cause in some cases it's all about speed and AutoCAD and SketchUp might be the better solution for you in that case, just because it's speed and you don't need all of the information. Um, And in other cases, you need all of that info. So, yeah.
1: um,
2: We talked a little bit about it, but how have you guys seen the profession evolve over your time in the industry? Anthony, you want to jump in first?
1: Sure. So, I think, I don't know, I like starting with what has not changed. People are still (laughs) people, they're still adaptable. Space is still space, stone is still stone. I think what is changing is the fact that um, we have both digital tools and um, manufactured construction um, materials that are evolving very, very fast. And so, um, I, I, don't think that a generation ago we had such an influx of, uh, manufactured materials that are changing so often. I could be wrong about that, but I, I think one of the most challenging areas and also one of the most exciting areas for me is just trying to keep up with all that is changing in terms of the materials, the technologies, the applications, the systems that are available to us—I need to have a basic understanding of to start to match make between problem and solution. Mm-hmm. And so, I think those are rapidly changing. Uh, I like that. That's a challenge, um, and I think that does contribute to how even a someone who is nowhere near a licensed architect, but just a user of architecture, that does contribute to their experience. The fact that. Homes now have so much technology in them that that the end user touches and they feel that the fact that uh, porcelain can now look like any product from uh, wood to marble uh, mm-hmm. that you know that, that changes the way that our uh, end users experience the architecture and so I like that change. Uh, everything has its strengths and its weakness. So newer is not always better, but I like that there's a lot of things out there. Yeah. Evan,
2: how, how have you seen the industry evolve, definitely looking through that lens of the large
0: firm? Well, back in my day, you know, <laughs> uh, so when I started, you know, I was an intern here, actually, when I was in school, and I was in the blueprint room, so I was inhaling ammonia. Uh, what's and, a blueprint? Yeah, what's that, right? <laughs> the blue line room, uh, and so so things have changed a lot. Like there were, there were some CAD systems, they were like $15,000 each, or maybe they were even more than that. Um, And now it's running on your, in the device in your pocket. Right. I mean, it's, it's incredible The not just the, the level at which technology is infiltrated, but the level of miniaturization of that same technology is incredible. Right? Like I've got a pair of AirPods that I wear, and there's those are two little computers that sit in my ears, right? And I've got I've got this ring on my finger that is my health tracking device, right? It's an Aura ring. Um, so it tracks my heart rate and my breathing and my sleep and my steps, and, and it's on my finger. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. Um, and and so I think like the level at which we we operate and how much we rely on technology, it's a little scary, right? I mean. Um, because we depend on it so much. Um, and, and what's interesting, you know, there's, there's five different generations of, of people in my my office. So when you talk about what's changed, um, I mean, the sixth generation is, is now gone, but they were here not too long ago. Um, there's a wealth of architectural knowledge that walks out of the door every, you know, couple of weeks here when somebody who's been at HMC for 40 years decides to retire. Um, there's a lot more turnaround in, in, the, in the firms today. There's, you know, because we have five different generations and because of the way millennials want to, you know, curate their life and curate the projects in their portfolio and move from firm to firm to do that, I mean, it's a very different mentality than my father's or my grandfather's mentality of you work one place for your whole life and, and then you retire, right? Yeah. Um, so it's like everything has changed. Absolutely, everything has changed. It, it's incredible because when I started, you know, there were drafting boards, and now everybody stares at a screen all day long, right? <laughs> so, it, it, I, I don't know if that's probably not for the better, right? But um, it, it's just every single thing has changed.
2: That, that's a fascinating point. Are you guys doing anything to, talking about the wealth of knowledge that walks out the door every few weeks, are you guys doing anything to facilitate that transfer? of knowledge
0: yeah it's interesting right like the the idea of mentorship is difficult because um it's the onus is on the 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 one who wants mentorship mm-hmm. to find mentors it's not the other way around and i, I think both camps are kind of like you know wait around for somebody to approach me kind of a mentality <laughs> uh because that's easier and um and and so it's like well what tools can we put in play that will actually facilitate a a place to encapsulate knowledge mm-hmm. so about a year ago we we started putting in play like took a serious look at at developing a system for that to happen here at this office and with all of our offices because we've got like eight offices and and so we need a way to transfer knowledge we need a, a hub um, and so we we developed and employed an internet to be able to do that to become like the single source of truth for the company because because, you know, the way things evolve, it's kind of haphazard, like you use the tool you like, they use the tool they like, and she uses the tool she likes. And now everybody's got like, little bits of knowledge stored away in their phones and their inboxes and their computers. And, um, and it's, it's their knowledge. So, so we had to create a place for knowledge to go. And very Google-esque, you just have to be able to search for it, right? Like, you can't rely on people to even put it in the right place. <laughs> Let You know, so, so it's like, I think the next level is really sitting down with those, those people who are going to leave the building and just doing like some serious interviewing kind of autobiography style interviews and capturing their knowledge and then putting it into the system because they're not going to do it themselves. Like they, they, they don't have the time. uh, It's not valuable enough to them Mm -hmm. potentially to, to take the time to do that or they're not like, technically inclined to even do it maybe so um i think there's a lot of roadblocks there but it's the onus is on the younger people to to grab that knowledge and put it somewhere where it's valuable for everybody for for the the greater good
2: yeah um,
0: and i think that's something that like architecture as a profession has really failed at, is like enabling or or let's just say like creating a foundation for all firms to use as a starting point Uh, Because I feel like we just, every firm is on their own to reinvent the wheel, every single project even, right? Like I'm comfortable with a white sheet of paper, I can design a building, you give me the parameters, I can do it. But man, like 95% of architecture is not comfortable with that. Um, And so it's like, we're going to design a hospital. Let's start from scratch. Mm -hmm. That makes no sense to me. (laughs) No sense at all. Like look how many big firms are out there who design hospitals all the time. And we got to start over every single time. Yeah. It makes no sense. So I think like if we thought about our profession more holistically, like we were all in this together, uh, I feel like we we could make strides in in a direction that would be better off for everybody.
2: I'm going to come to you in a second, Anthony. Uh, But Evan, what do you think has sort of fractured the industry?
0: We think our ideas are so precious. <laughs> uh, like, like they're my ideas, and I can't – they're my secrets, and it's my intellectual property. The, the truth of the matter is we're all working on the same tools. We're all making the same kinds of buildings. Um, I mean, obviously, there's some outliers out there, but I think we, we think our stuff is is so amazing, and and, it, and it's we, we make it – we tell ourselves a story that um, – that that we believe which is like this stuff is ours it's precious it's it's my ip um, and it can't get out Um, i think social media has changed that i i don't think that the younger generations operate like that even i think sharing is caring right like it's the the sharing economy it's very different than the people who maybe control um at least the larger firm's uh, and and I, I've actually seen evidence recently, uh, to the contrary, where people are very open. But I think it, it kind of took the younger generations creeping into those positions to really get that kind of thinking um, to, to have any legs under it when, when you're out there talking to other firms and, and just collaborating and communicating and, and working together instead of in these individual silos.
2: Yeah. Anthony, Evan just teed you up perfectly talking about social media. <laughs> but I wanted to kind of throw that question at you as far as um, that transition of knowledge. In a, in a smaller firm, time is a huge factor and that's gonna affect the amount of time that you can transfer your knowledge to the next person or any of your senior people to transfer that knowledge because you're busy doing things. How have you sort of handled that or or what is that like in, in your firm?
1: Right. so. We do try to attack it from, I would say, two approaches. The first would be very formal and disciplined, and the other would be very informal. So uh, the formal disciplined way is every Monday morning we meet to have presentations, and we're all presenting on something that we're an expert in that inspires us. Uh, then our staff meetings happen with our project managers, and there's a specific part of the meeting where we try to have like knowledge share, where the left hand knows what the right hand is doing. Uh, when we have people who transition in or transition out, we have a system for capturing their knowledge. And there's a yeah, very detailed process just to try to capture in our own version of the wiki all that we all know. On the informal sense, uh, because we are only 12 people, we can all sit together. Um, some people wear headphones and that's not discouraged, but at the same time for those who want to be a individual contributor, but still be aware of what's around them. They're going to be picking up on literally dozens of conversations and client meetings and pinups, um, that does help, I think, lift the baseline of awareness. So it would be impossible for me to know everything, you know, It'd be impossible for you to know everything I know. But if we interact enough and we work shoulder to shoulder, I'm going to be aware of the things that you are so gifted at and even aware of the experiences that have defined you. So then when I'm, hitting my own roadblocks. I know whether Demetrius is the go-to or Evan's the go-to. And so that's our structure. I recognize that that will break down as we grow and we do want to grow. Uh, So we may have to rely more and more upon the formal and disciplined formats for capturing knowledge. Uh, But it's important. Uh, We have learned that sharing like a rising tide lifts all boats. So we are all about hosting user groups and like giving away our tips because that just contributes to attracting smart people and reciprocating uh when we need it and so yeah i think that our we have a long way to go but we're moving the right direction
0: yeah you've i've heard of the mentality where like it training is hard to do because what if those people go somewhere else with that new knowledge right and it's like and then and then
1: of course it's (laughs) like
0: well what if you don't and they stay right so uh So I agree. I mean, and I love that you guys, I, I watch your, your Instagram videos where you're showing off the team talks and you're, you're exposing how you guys work. And we found the same thing here. When, when people sit together on project teams and they're not like one cube here and one cube over there, I mean, it's like they've got to sit together so that there's just that general awareness. And that really does help. And I, and I think that's where social media Slack channels, Really do help the solopreneur who's out there practicing by themselves. I mean, if they can have the windows up on their screen and and listen to podcasts and and have that interaction with other people outside of their little zone, uh, they're going to be doing participating in a similar thing. It might not be exactly the same as sitting right next to somebody shoulder to shoulder, but it does expose the rest of the architectural profession to them. And I think that's something that we get a lot of feedback on our podcast about where it's just like, man, I just feel like feel like I'm part of the studio. And, awesome. and that adds value to my day as a solo retired architect who is in Vermont. Right. It's, like, it's interesting. Yeah. That's awesome.
2: Anthony, can you dive into that a little bit about how you guys are handling social media and sharing your knowledge, not only um, within the firm, but to the broader population?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I love this topic. A couple quick disclaimers. I realize social media is social media. It is not an <laughs> accurate reflection of someone's whole life. Uh, by the same token, I don't, there are so many conversations about how to leverage it. And sincerely, like, we use it because we enjoy it. Like, I, I I use Instagram for inspiration. I love following different firms who show what they're doing. And I find myself, proud of a lot of the work that we're doing and sometimes vulnerable enough to share the work that I'm less proud of. Uh, But I just feel like putting it out there has become our way to connect to a broader audience of our profession, just in a way where we can be connected to a conversation. Um, In terms of tactics and strategy and return on investment, it is very useful to have a positive brand uh, when it comes to talent recruiting and talent retention. Right, And so that, that's just a good thing. As it relates to client, the bigger footprint we build, the more impact we're seeing on incoming opportunities. So I think that does make a difference. It's not one of our top three referral sources, uh, but it's it's growing every year. And and maybe lastly, it just has become recently even a tool in a, in a traditional sense. So we recently uh, just put out, I put out a little message saying, hey man, I'm looking for um someone who can help me design a custom light fixture. Does anyone know any ceramic studios who can do that? And the response was rad. We got like seven or eight responses, either people saying I can do it or saying check out these guys. We then message them all and our clients about to hire one. Right. That's just it's just fun to have That's that cool. sort of broad wiki. Of course I could have Googled it. Of course I could have yelped it or used house or Pinterest, but just to have a trusted community where people they know what we're about, right? They kind of have a, an, an understanding of our ethos for them to say, "Hey, let me make a personal recommendation." That that's just that's just fun, right? That's yeah. just a tool right there that I enjoy.
2: Yeah, I didn't even think about some of that as far as you're creating this community and utilizing each other's networks and and sort of a a baseline understanding and trust just from yeah. <laughs> digital right. uh, digital trust. So we're gonna try and pound through a few questions real quick because uh, I think these are important topics as well. Is what uh, what do you guys find the most complex part about our industry, and how have you specifically resolved whatever that complexity is? We talked about a few, but what do you think is the most complex part? Evan, you want to jump in?
0: Yeah, there's two. There's there's an internal one and an external one. So the internal one is like change management. How do we how do we change and get better and and integrate new technology continually, right? Because We've gone through some major phase shifts in our past, right? We went from paper to CAD, we went from CAD to BIM, and those were some big giant hurdles. But now it's just constant ramp of evolution. So ch- internal change management there, and continually evaluating, vetting, and then you know usually implementing new tools is and training and all the stuff that goes around with that. Um, that's tough, and it's it's tough to change mindsets. It's tough to change the way we work. I mean, these things are habits that have been embedded over decades in many cases, so they're hard to break. Um, obviously, younger generations, it's its way easier than it is with older ones. Um, externally, the toughest thing, I think, is we are competing against firms in a world where faster equals better, it perce- it's a perception. Uh, and so how can you do more with less, and how do you stand out in the crowd? Uh, so kind of you know from my point of view leveraging technology to help try to do that but ultimately understanding that it's our people that matter the most and not so much the tools but living in a world where people want to say it just works right this is it and, and they did it faster and cheaper than anybody else and I'm not as interested in that race to the bottom there will always be somebody who can do it cheaper mm-hmm. um, and maybe faster but probably not better um, so so it's like that that balance in trying to navigate those waters of finding the right clients that you guys have a shared vision and goal of, that you can elevate each other it's not just a one-way street i think one of the things that that a, a company the size of us struggles with is trying like shifting away from the trying to be all things to all people yeah uh, and and really starting to focus on where we can add value and have the most impact
2: yeah anthony
1: yeah. So for me, I think Evan nailed it with those external, and internal challenges. I already mentioned the pace at which things change. as has been a challenge. I think the, the answer I'm going to give right now in terms of what's challenging us is how to scale an artistic service. And so I do aspire to grow a team right now. We launched as two right now we're 12. Uh, I want 12 to become 24 and 24 to become 48. Um, but as we add projects, as we add clients, how do we still bring that single, solopreneur, um, you're my only client and I'm your devoted architect passion when we are now scaling? And now we are not a one-man band, but we're an orchestra. And so how do we retain that like, that fervor and that craft um, and have that influence grow when I cannot photocopy myself, right? That's, I'm not saying that's the limit, but, and we have great people where we can scale up. And I'm not concerned about like having a homogenous process that doesn't flex. It's more about just the conceptual challenge of how does art scale and not become the rubber stamp. And so I think a lot about that. And I I don't know, I, I doubt there's a silver bullet out there but I care deeply about the topic yeah
2: yeah that's uh that's a tough one and i think it comes back to kind of what you talked about earlier is um when you're looking for to to add people to the team it's not necessarily about just which program you know or whatever specific thing it's it's those intangible qualities that you're looking at to sort of replicate yourself or get close to it Hmm. okay so What On the flip side of that coin, what have you guys found as the most rewarding part of the practice, Evan?
0: By far the most rewarding part of my career has been uh, just helping other people. Either realize something that they didn't think was possible or achieve the next level in whatever they're doing. I think that uh, I wish there was a lot more of that out there. And I think that's something that, that has drawn me to watch Anthony's work in particular so much is that that he's really about exposing how they make people's dreams come true yeah. and going back to my story like when i when i would work with a client and they said like i i designed a school it's a K through 6 school and and the superintendent of that whole district was was giving a presentation to the crowd. And they're saying, you know, they're talking about this new school that's going to be built. And a parent's like, hey, I, I just want to do you have any pictures? I really want to see what the school is going to look like. What's it going to be like? And and he said, I can't show you anything. He goes, all I can say is it's the school you've always dreamed of. Hmm. And and when somebody says something like that, like that is the most emotional movie scene that I've ever seen. Hmm. Right. Or or when the client says you did something that i would have never thought of to me that's it's just little moments like that during my career that that have really nailed it
2: yeah definitely and you kind
0: of mentioned it
2: opening starting my own practice definitely elevated that level of those moments of having that face to face that direct contact with the client you yeah. get that that experience that um that conversation the you know they really appreciate what you did and being able to solve someone's problem and, and know that you did solve someone's problem, uh, is an amazing feeling.
0: Um, yeah, and it's not, the, it's not the technology. It's not even necessarily the building. It's just that human to human connection. I think that that actually matters the most.
2: Yeah.
1: Anthony. Yeah. I mean, I, it means so much to me when I can see my clients. Feel inspired by a space that they helped author. That's yeah. that's just so fun, especially when you know part of us is responding to the same thing as an architect and a client. Part of us is responding to different things. Um, and maybe the only thing I can add to Evan's um, answer is just also seeing uh, a young designer mature into a rock star is something that I have gotten a lot of personal satisfaction out of to see. Um, Someone who might come from community college, kind of come in with just the humility and the drive and the grind to get to work. And then several years later to be just doing an incredible job with all these new skill sets, really respected by their peers in a new way, or to have someone come in and um, kind of start helping with some of the administration and then really grow into – um, someone who understands risk management and how to do you know financial projections just seeing that that growth is inspiring to me. I like being around people who are kind of aiming high and can, can achieve something awesome without slowing down they just want to get on to the next thing so that that I think that team building that studio building I'm discovering is a passion of mine yeah um, and so I'm, I'm hope hopeful that that can continue
2: great. This is a really tough one. Now, what does the future of architecture look like? <laughs> I, I know there's a lot of conversations, some bleak, about we're all going to disappear and robots are going to take our jobs. <laughs> and then on the other side, it's robots are going to make our job easy and we'll be able to get more creative and um, it's going to open whole new doors. What do you guys think? Evan, I'll start with you, the technology guru.
0: Mm-hmm. man uh so yeah i think there's a bunch of different opinions i have on that i when it comes to firms it seems to me like man the bigger are getting bigger and the middle is getting eaten up and so it kind of leaves like this very small boutique firms and then the very large mega firms so i think you know it, you got you kind of have to decide what you want to be um not that you ever have to to fall into that, but I, it, it's definitely a trend that I see happening. And then I also see um, I see firms trying to get farther and farther away from risk, right? So they're allowing CMs to come in and take that risk on because it like more risk, more reward, right? Um, if they're willing to to take it on, then then the potential is that they they could get more reward for it. So I think for the most part, they're they're trying to take that on, and to the architect's potential demise in that way, I guess you could say that, you know, maybe, and I see it all the time, uh, construction management firms are actually just hiring architects so that they can, they can skip the whole, you know, they can offer that as a service as part of their service as well. Hmm. So, you know, I, it, it's interesting to see where it's going. I, I don't know the answer about the machines. I don't think, <laughs> I, I think we're really where the, the, the architect's value lies is not in the, production of the drawings but in the generation of in the synthesis of the ideas mm-hmm. and i wish that we would put more focus on putting value an architect's value where it actually is and stop trying to compete in some of those other forms of work and i think that we would all have to do that together i don't think that that's anything that any um, architect is going to be able to pull off by themselves i mean they might be able to on a small scale but i think if you really wanted to change the profession and change the the way the perception is perceived it should be in the value where we add value in projects. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. a Couple ideas to throw out there, but I I don't have the <laughs> answers. Uh, Anthony,
1: I'm going to interpret your question. What does the future of architecture look like? I'm going to take it from kind of like Evan from the from the professional side. Uh, what has what is the future of the architecture profession? You know, one of the trends that I see that could really shake things up is what I would call like the gig economy. And so uh, I am. I, I think the future could look a little bit more like the film industry where architects and designers start to build a little bit more of a personal brand, and there's a lot more mixing of of firms and teams based upon a project. So you, Demetrius, might have a few small projects that you do all the things on, but you might also develop the reputation for being an expert in a particular category. I would pull you onto a project as a consultant. On another one, you might be a three-way joint venture. I I really do think that the lifelong career association with a firm is not gonna be uh, be the, the pattern, and people are gonna jump around a lot and it's not going to be so much of a faux pas like, oh, bummer, you yeah. went there for two years, but that that projects are going to become the hub and different professionals are going to be pulled on to play director and producer and, and all that. So that's just my theory. So I'm, I'm curious as, as I hire rock stars and they uh, want to start their own firm, we might still be connected to each other in some way. So I'm, I'm trying to be open-minded about like not getting hit by that, but trying to embrace that. Um if I were to throw two cents out there as to what the actual future of buildings might look like, I think the theme of flexibility is is uh, massive and that spaces that are, are more about the infrastructure where things can be adapted and changed is going to be something that the the most like avant-garde firms are going to continue to lead because… Building still costs a ton. Technology is often replaced, and so to develop the shell that is flexible to an extent, whether technologically flexible or literally spatially flexible, um, I think we're going to start seeing more and more of that. And we're even seeing that on the residential scale. Yeah,
0: and- I agree with that. I, I, it's funny because the uh, the projects we do more often than not, we are asked just to create a, a slate for somebody to to house a rotating program in right it's not it's not specific it's black box theater right it's yeah. it's it's the slate of glass that you hold in your pocket that can display anything right yeah. it's and, and the technology gets out of the way i the buildings are are turning out to be more and more like that
2: so one last thing before you guys get out of here we're introducing a new segment for our guests in this segment we ask our guests what was that like So Evan, your first all-nighter
0: in school. Okay, so good, good question. Uh, I've never had one. What? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think all-nighters are stupid. Um, and I was, I was, I was so like, like a, a boss with my time, my time management. Okay. I would not allow that to happen. And I think it's, it is not something that anybody should wear on their sleeve. Uh, it's, it's unhealthy. It's unsafe. I never do my best thinking at 3am. Um, <laughs> and so I am actually very proud to say zero all nighters in school. Wow. Yeah. Uh, to highlight
2: the point of it is unsafe. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think it was There's my many first. many stories out yeah. there like this. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it was my first all-nighter. Yeah, I think you know one of these stories. Uh, I don't think it was my first all-nighter, but one of them, I was cutting a uh, model, uh, foam board for my model, and uh, the x knife slipped off the table, stabbed myself in the thigh. Terrible, terrible experience, yeah. uh, but that's what it was like for me.
0: Well, I, when I was in school there at the same school you went to, yeah. um, they did outlaw power tools after like 10 PM. So <laughs> for the first time in decades. Right. That, so obviously it's like, well, yeah.
2: Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Anthony.
1: Uh, we landed our first, um, I'm going to call it a celebrity athlete client and this client did not live, had traveled a lot and, um, we were so excited to get the job. Of course, you can imagine we put everything into um, the design package that we were going to unveil when we met them for the first time. Uh, but as it turned out, um, my wife went into labor um, oh the same, like the night before uh, the person was scheduled to uh, fly in and meet with us. And so I just remember like this moment of I'm at the building department in line. I'm with my wife. She goes into labor, so we leave. And the thought crosses my mind: "Well, I'll stay in line." And she looks at me like you're an idiot. Like, so we leave. We, um, we you know, go through 24 hours of discovering what it's like to become parents, and everything looks good and is wonderful. And then, you know, I kind of like forgot about this client meeting. But of course, I had two incredible employees working in our garage, and so. You know, I, it's this kind of strange family moment where I'm like, okay, we got through this challenge. Like, honey, I'm going to go tackle the next challenge. I'll be right back, right? So <laughs> you, you go home, you shower, you pick up uh, all the drawings. You, you go to, you know, meet uh, a exciting new client. And, you know, I did do an all-nighter that night. And you present. <laughs> and so it's this sort of thing where, like, to some people that would be hell, right? And that's, like, the last thing that they ever want to do. I met my wife in architecture school. She's the strongest, most generous, wonderful person I know. And so for us, that is that's what we love. And now I have three boys and they are all super into building and design. They're not yet teenagers, so we'll see if it wears off or not. But just it's that idea that for me, life can be very much integrated between work and family and faith and culture. And like I just I like the mixed upness of it. I know that's not for everybody, uh, but starting a firm was a lot harder than I thought it was. At the same time, I would do it all over again, and I consider it a privilege to be on this journey. I've learned a ton from guys like uh, Evan and all the other folks who are putting out really great podcasts. So uh, please, everyone listening, take advantage of soaking it all in.
2: Great, great stories. And and great point, Evan, that you should not do all-nighters. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not if you can help it, man. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yep. Alright, so thank you guys again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I love this uh, this episode and love sitting down with you guys. You're well, very welcome. I yeah. Appreciate it
0: the opportunity.
2: Thanks guys.
1: Thanks to you, Chris.
2: Huge thank you again to Anthony and Evan. Uh, if you want more information you can find out for Anthony at Laney LA. That's Laney, L-A-N-E-Y, dot L-A. Or you can always find him on Instagram at LaneyLA, Inc. And for Evan, you can check HMCArchitects.com. Uh, you can check out his podcast, Archie Speak Podcast. It's A-R-C-H-I, com, Or you can find him on Twitter, etroxel.com. That's E-T-R-O-X-E-L. And thank you again for hanging out with us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And while you're there, please rate, like the show, and forward a link to your friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. Don't forget to check out spacespodcast.com for more info. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts.
4: People are moving away from you know, working for larger firms and understanding that they want more control over their time. They wanna be able to control what they work on and who they work with and how many hours a week they work. And we saw the evolution of the profession and its effects with the internet on, on that profession. And one of the things that I've seen and I've experienced is the shift to virtual studios.